Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe, Lewis Goldberg, and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, our hosts are chatting with Jelani Gibson, the content lead at the NJ Cannabis Insider for NJ Advanced media, which is also home to NJ.com and the Star Ledger. Having previously covered gun violence and other social equity issues at his previous stops in Kansas City and Texas, Jelani is well-versed on the convergence of public policy and social justice. We sat down with him to look at how issues around social justice and policing have stalled efforts to pass the cannabis legalization bill in New Jersey and what the outlook of that market looks like for both consumers and businesses after voters approved cannabis on the ballot in November. This is a tremendously thought-provoking conversation that will provide a ton of insight into how the war on drugs still plays a heavy role in legislation around cannabis and potential solutions to empower communities that have historically been underserved and underrepresented. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Jelani Gibson. Jelani Gibson, the content lead at NJ Cannabis Insider for New Jersey Advanced Media, which is also the home to NJ.com and the Star Ledger. Um, what an amazing title. And you're, do, you're brand new to this. Um, and you're so new to New Jersey that you're actually working from Kansas City. This is indeed true. I remember <laughs> having a having a conversation with you saying that you definitely didn't have to put that long title in there. But you are completely like, nope, nope, you're getting, you're getting all of it. You're getting it. You're yeah. getting it. Yeah. It's yours. You own it. <laughs> yep. I am in Kansas City. I was uh, recently hired from the Kansas City Star as a uh, gun violence reporter. And I started that job in, um, in roughly um, May. Um, which is when the uh, protest uh, started off. And so, you know, I did that for a minute, um, basically took a systemic approach to gun violence, you know, talking about all of the factors such as uh, housing policies, uh, police union contracts, things like that. And I met uh, some of the editors over at NJ.com through a mutual friend. And um, they asked me if I was interested in taking the same approach to the cannabis beat. And that's how they reeled me in. And now I'm here. Very cool. Very cool. So what has there any, been anything surprising about joining cannabis? Like, obviously, there's been a ton in the industry that's been covered over the last couple of years. But how is it for somebody that's that's entering in it right now? You know, what's what's interesting to me about the um, about covering cannabis and really interesting to me about the way that journalism is going, period, is that it's a very uh, niche industry, so to speak. And I've seen that transformation take place in news uh, a lot of the times, you know, we're still gonna cover city hall, we're still gonna cover uh, legislatures, but now you're starting to see a lot of media companies lean more and more into issues that are specifically of importance to the audience. And so, you know, when I was in grad school, I was um, covering sexual assault and hazing because that was a big topic of importance in that community. In Kansas City, it was gun violence, now it's cannabis. And so there are some similarities in that 
it's very much niche driven and intersectional reporting. But what gets me about the cannabis space is uh, quite frankly, the sources, right? Um, <laughs> it's just facts. You know, the, uh, the sources are, it's like, this is, it's like to me, this cannabis space is like a very, very laid back industry, but a very, very uh, serious topic with serious ramifications, so to speak. You know, and usually as a as a journalist coming from um, from other beats, you're used to kind of like being super serious with sources all the time. Right. You know, like, uh, you know, my last two beats were like gun violence and then sexual assault and hazing. And so it was it was kind of like there wasn't any room to, I guess, bring my own, I guess, chill, relaxed personality to the fray. Whereas in the cannabis space, I get to do that. But I also have to keep in mind that this is still um, an important part of journalism that needs to be uh, explored at those very important intersections. And so, you know, the sources have been great. They've been very relaxed. And um, another thing that's got me about this space is, quite frankly, um, how intersectional it is. I mean, anything you want to cover in everything that I've covered throughout my career has now, I feel like, taken me into the cannabis space. And so when you talk about things like uh, gun violence and criminal justice reform, like that's a part of cannabis. When you, uh, I used to be an education reporter before that, right? And so, you know, when you talk about education, I mean, education is important for the consumer, it's important for the cannabis space, but it's also going to transform, you know, the K through 12 and higher education uh, beat as well. And so, um, what got me about this beat is how all of my previous beats can still basically fit into this current beat. And I think that's pretty cool. You uh, you didn't see the questions beforehand, but you basically answered my, my next question, which was, you know, as covering gun violence in the past, it really does inherently dovetail with social justice issues. Um, you know, how would I guess what lens are you looking at the cannabis industry having that past and and with the social justice you know, gun violence is a social justice beat, right? Like, what what are you looking to bring to the New Jersey, specifically New Jersey cannabis reporting that maybe hasn't been done before? Well, you know, I would like to look at the entire uh, ecosystem of, of the cannabis beat and look at how it is sociologically affecting people's lives. Um, with a full spectrum approach, which essentially just means that cannabis is about business. Cannabis is about, uh, you know, regulation and, and that part of the business can't be ignored. But I think for quite some time, we've talked about social justice and justice in general, as if it was this uh, separate thing, as opposed to a fundamental aspect that should be ingrained in every aspect of your life. You know, um, there needs to be justice in the workplace, right? There needs to be justice inside, you know, um, your house. If you're a parent and um, you're disciplining um, kids, perhaps there needs to be a, you know, something of a disciplinary or justice process in place. What does, what does fairness look like? What does justice look like? Um, obviously, when it comes to the criminal justice system. And, and so what I want to bring to, to this uh, specific beat is I want to let people know that 
um, social justice and business and regulation are not inherently to be separated so much as ingratiated into the decision-making processes of that business and of that regulation. When I was a gun violence reporter, we were um, looking at the specific causes of gun violence from a more holistic perspective, like, uh, you know, housing policies, uh, police union contracts, uh, patterns of uh, trust and distrust within communities of color, things like that. You're, you're taking a ground up approach and looking at the environmental factors that essentially birth the business and birth the regulation. And that's what I want to bring to, to the cannabis space. Um, there's business and regulation in this, but we also need to talk about how are people living their lives underneath this type of business and underneath this type of regulation? We need to understand that this business and these regulations are more than just words on pieces of paper. This is a live interconnected ecosystem that is going to affect people's lives. And uh, that's what I, I hopefully plan to bring to the beat. Yeah. And it's definitely, you know, just to build off that, and it's not something that's just going to be going forward. It's, it's systemically, how did we get to this point and what are we going to do to, or how are these states or different communities going to resolve those past issues? And it's, in, I think, you know, you're probably one of the most qualified people to be covering this given your past beats because New Jersey is a place that, you know, the, the police unions are, are very influential. The kind of the holdup so far on the legislation has seemed to be re revolving around um, making sure those social justice issues are being addressed, that um, underserved communities are going to be able to have a seat at the table, that it's not going to be the, the large MSOs and stuff that are able to just come in here and get the licenses. And so I'm interested, what have you, you know, seen within social justice so far since joining the beat that that you think is, you know, doing well so far in New Jersey? Well, I think what is doing well is that, um, from the jump, I think that there were a lot of on the ground advocates, um, activists and organizers. And I always say activists and organizers because a lot of people in, in the advocacy space will clearly tell you that there is a difference between being um, an activist and an organizer. Um, I think that what that space has done well in New Jersey is they've definitely made it known that However, the social equity regulations pan out that that's just the beginning. And I think, you know, you sometimes see this pattern, right, where there's like this big push for social justice and then everybody kind of like falls back and gets uh, like real comfortable, you know, like let's go ahead and pass, um, you know, civil rights and then, you know, sit back and, and think everything's okay. And I think that the advocacy space in New Jersey has been very, very clear that the um, beginning of the social equity components are simply just the beginning of social justice and certainly um, not the end. Letting people know that, that that is a process that needs to be tapped into uh, for the long haul. The 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 Black Caucus in New Jersey has been um, historically reticent for the legalization movement, um, you know, and it's, you know, seen, you know, black and brown people disproportionately arrested um, and fined um, for cannabis, nonviolent cannabis offenses. Um, and they have really been a catalyst in pushing forth um, 
you know, legislation that both speaks to, you know, correcting the wrongs of writing the wrongs of the past, um, but also things like um, like this enforcement for people under under the age of 21. They really pushed back and said that, you know, um, it, it, the, I guess this latest bill, which has now been inc included, um, says that there's now more protections from police for young people. Um, you know, if they're caught smoking or if they're caught with, I don't know, a gummy or something. Um, do you think that's enough or is there still so much historic hurt and pain from the war on drugs that, you know, that, that this community, you know, has a right to be cautious? Well, yeah. I mean, one thing that we have to, an ugly truth that we have to acknowledge, right, is that, you know, um, the basic premise of the dynamic that we're talking about here is that um, Black people as an ethnicity have only had the basic tenets of their humanity recognized in roughly the past 50 plus years, right? You, you, you know somebody who's like 60. We all know somebody who's older than 60. Like there are people in our society that are actually older than the entire recognized humanity of my people. That's a pretty hard pill to swallow. And what we also have to understand about those uh, civil rights acts, it wasn't as if these acts were made and then a bunch of the states just automatically embraced it, right? Like there, there was resistance. You know, if, if you pass the Civil Rights Act, it's probably going to take anywhere from 10 to 15 years to actually see it through to full implementation and compliance. You know, if you're fighting against some um, discriminatory banking practices, it's going to take like another 15 to 20 years to set up a compliance apparatus and mechanism for that. And so the, the basic premise of the relationship um, that we have to understand here is it's, it's very basic relationship building, right? Like if, you know, if, if someone had to tell you to show up to work, right. Or, you know, or if your if your intimate partner had to ask you for like basic respect, you would very much come to the conclusion. It's probably not the best relationship for you to be in. And that's basically how a lot of communities of color feel about the way that police have interacted with them in uh, the war on drugs, because uh, it is certainly the perception of many black people that the war on drugs was also a war on black people in a country that has literally waged war on black people and other indigenous populations and people of color. So for the, uh, to, to sit there and say that, well, if you get caught with a plant that we have started a war over, you will still be redirected to the very system that has dehumanized your existence in the first place in the aspect of being in a country that has only recently recognized your humanity I would imagine those people would not be fans at all. What do you think the industry, and I'm using, I guess I, it, cannabis as a big business. I mean, it, it is what it is. What can, what can the industry be doing to, to better communicate, to better address these issues? Because it just seems like it's, it's, 
it's stuck. It's not getting through. Yeah. Well, you know, one, I mean, there aren't going to stop being big companies like the big companies aren't going to go out of business. And so they're just going to get bigger. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this is the age of uh, consolidation. And, you know, that's that's across everything. I mean, when you talk about the business space overall, I mean, the economy overall, the American economy is, you know, the business of consolidation and, and merging. That's what big economies do. That's what happens when you're a superpower. Um, I think the, the key here is asking whether or not these uh, big companies and businesses have enough uh, inclusion in their decision-making processes right? There's a difference between having inclusion in your decision-making process and having people included in the room. Like, are you including uh, different populations of color in your decision-making process? Do you have boards uh, to help you with local decisions and things like that? And then also comes the even bigger debate of does more diversity, equity, and inclusion look like more people of color at MSOs, or does it look like that in addition to more businesses of color to begin with? (laughs) And because I I think that when you are a CEO of, uh, of color, it's oftentimes not really posited as a, as a choice, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. hard to be a person of color in a position of power and not want to do something um, about injustices that are happening to an ethnicity that you are a part of. Whereas for white people, it really is a choice because, you know, you can go, they can go through their entire lives and, and be just, be just fine. Um, That's what a choice is. You know, that is the, that is what the luxury of having a choice is. Whereas if you're a person of color, that choice does not exist. And so when you include people in the decision-making chain for whom such things are not a choice, you get a different perspective and you get a different dynamic because people have lived by a different imperative. And so when you ingratiate those imperatives into the decision-making process, into the C-suite and into the sustainable business process, I think that that's what, that's what will probably lead to bigger change. Yeah. And you know, it's one of the things that we've advised our clients on. It's like, you need to give these different, you know, diverse backgrounds seats at the table when it comes to C-suites. It's, it's a lot of lip service over the last couple of years that these companies have been giving to, to society and giving to the market. But then when you look at their, their presentations, there's, you know, maybe one white woman sitting on that board of a room full of white men. And I I think you're a hundred percent like spot on there, but I want to go back to kind of what you were talking about in terms of, um, you know, minority owned businesses. And you recently wrote a story on the, on the ease momentum accelerator that somebody from New Jersey, um, Leo Bridgewater had was one of the recipients. I think he was the only one not from California, not to receive it. And so I was wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on like an accelerator program like that from a larger company like ease trying to promote social equity? Yeah. Yeah. Leo, Leo's a great guy. I mean, everybody knows Leo, so it definitely doesn't surprise me. Um, I do believe that there was someone else from uh, from the East Coast that uh, that got it as well, but he's he was definitely in a in a rare club to say the least. Um, 
you know, the thing that got me about the ease program is that it wasn't a loan, right? Like it was, it was money. <laughs> like it was, it was a grant. And, you know, they were like, here, you know, here's, uh, here's some money and we'll put you through this program and training. And then you'll get the opportunity to not only pitch us, but also people that we know in the industry as well. And I think that, you know, I've, I've interviewed um, the people at ease and um, one, it was being led by minorities. And two, uh, when I spoke to the people over at ease, a big word, a big buzzword for them was generational wealth. And that is really the uh, foundation of what a good social equity program does. A good social equity program is not focused on press releases or, or numbers of how many people you've helped per se. A good social equity program is focused on generational wealth. It's a little bit more like less risky to do a loan, right, with low interest, because the key word in that is interest. And so, you know, you're still going to make money off of the investment. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with low interest loans. I'm just saying it's it's a very safe way to go about um, social equity. But when you start when you start giving money away. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, when you when you start giving money away and, and say, here, you take this and um, and we want to put you through a program that can encourage generational wealth. Uh, those are the type of social equity programs to keep an eye out for. And, um, you know, the companies that we should also keep an eye out for are companies that don't wait for the government to do those type of uh, social equity programs that everyone is calling for. Because, you know, um, in, in New Jersey, they're obviously going to take the tax revenue and put it towards a lot of, uh, you know, social programs. But, you know, there's nothing stopping these companies, right? from using their own money to invest in those exact same type of programs. And so I think that the companies that have the best social equity programs are going to be people that are able to do, um, you know, collaborations like what has happened with Leo and companies that actually are able to recreate some of the same type of giving initiatives that these taxes are going to. Um, I mean, I, I think that's, that's so interesting because, you know, we are seeing a lot of companies, you know, want to come to the fore with social equity programs and they almost want like a, a quick hit that, I, I mean, and I don't mean to take that away. I, I just, it seems like it is not, they're so busy in trying to keep their businesses afloat that a lot of times right or wrong, wrong, um, you know, initiatives like this fall by the wayside. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's a hard sell to, to a public company, especially, um, to the shareholders to be like, you know, this is, this is what our program is. This is what we're investing in. We're like, they're all about ROI. And if, you know, if you say, you know, oh, well, you know, this is really a program to build generational wealth. Let's see, let's like see where this is in 20 years while it's the right thing to do. Um, I, I can just imagine a lot of those boardrooms are like, we need a quicker, we, we need a more immediate response. Um, so I think that, that 
a lot of times that that will be just not attainable, unfortunately not attainable for the companies as they are now, um, you know, almost without the regulation, without the, the government saying like, okay, guys, like this is something that you need to do. I, I don't, maybe I just don't have enough faith. Well, I think also <laughs> maybe, I think also maybe because you know. there's not minorities sitting in those rooms. With exactly. Them, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, which which kind of goes back to the to the point earlier, right? Like it's a it's a different conversation when you're speaking to a bunch of uh, C-suite people of of color. It's a it's a different type of imperative. It's like, look, no, we have to help out the communities that we came from. That, that it goes back to that whole thing of, you know, the imperative of choice versus not having that. Um, you know, versus not having that choice. And so I think that's where more minority owned businesses, uh, you know, come in because there needs to be small businesses and then small businesses can set up an ecosystem to, you know, to help that local community. And so I, I wouldn't even expect it to be all on like uh, the MSOs. Like what, what I would, I think that the most sustainable and realistic path forward is that you get a lot of uh, small businesses that are in tune to the specific needs of that specific neighborhood or that specific community. And you start seeing these small businesses start making um, co-ops and, and local initiatives. And maybe simply the MSOs just simply invest in those initiatives and invest in the people on the ground who know what they're doing and have the specific localized knowledge of uh, being on the front lines every single day. Uh, so let's pivot um, and talk New Jersey. Um, <laughs> I am from New Jersey. I know the state very well. My whole family's in New Jersey. Um, and they were so excited in November uh, for many reasons. One of the reasons being that the voters spoke in mm -hmm. favor of a legal marketplace for cannabis, for adult use cannabis. And since then, it has stalled. Um, and it is, you know, Murphy has been Murphy, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there, you guys had a great piece the other day that kind of detailed out the scenarios, um, you and, and your colleague Amanda, um, I think had written it. Can you just give us like the, the two minute overview for our listeners about what the frick is happening in New Jersey. And I know we curse, so I'll just say what the fuck, what the fuck yeah. is happening in New Jersey? <laughs> yeah. So, so long story short, the voters approved it and, uh, there were the voters approved it and basically um, a decrim bill and a legalization bill they ended up conflicting in such a manner that there would be no penalties for uh you know for underage users and so um you know there was a desire to have uh, penalties established and legislators of color spoke back out against those penalties saying that those penalties would disproportionately target communities of color. And that's, that's pretty much where, where the disagreement is, uh, is, is basically at right now. So, so how, how does it get resolved from that point? Is yeah. it going to just be hearings? Is it, you know, does Phil Murphy need to come out and take executive action on this? Because well, yeah. I mean, there, there are there are like a, essentially a, enough enough votes to get it passed without him. The, the question is, you know, does does he want to to go that route and have a bill 
pass without him when he has made it a uh, when he made it a key part of his uh, previous campaign platform. And so that that's really like the uh, does he want to do that? Is is that the direction that he will uh, want to go in? It's it's really more of like a who blinks first type deal. But you know, I think the governor is 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 in a pretty difficult position here, where um, you know there are no easy routes out of not passing this. Like the, you know, there, there, there is, there, there are no easy routes out of not passing this. And so I think it's, it's a matter of who is going to take the most pain and, and blink first is, is, is the best way that I can put it. But is it pressure from like the police unions to, you know, instill these penalties? Like who, who, who is looking at this right now, looking at the, the shape of their economy, looking at the opportunity they have to get ahead of Pennsylvania and New York on this and worried about punishing kids that are, that have been smoking pot, frankly, like how, like who is the one that is fighting for this? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's like the, the million dollar uh, question. Like I, I don't think that there are any specific um, I don't, I, I couldn't like place my hand on like one specific entity that could be responsible for this because I mean, there are some people in the cannabis space who are like, yeah, I completely agree that there should be um, underage penalties because, you know, we don't want to be perceived as uh, a non-serious industry that doesn't care about kids. And so, you know, I mean, as, as far as like the police unions, I mean, the, the, the police have never wanted, you know, this this plant legalized to to begin with. And so, I mean, they're 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 like way beyond, you know, um, underage penalties like, you know, they would prefer if it just didn't happen um, altogether. And people are still being arrested, too, by the way. <laughs> that is that is that is still happening. That is still happening. So I, I think really like what is what is that play here is is quite frankly, I'm not sure whether or not states or even our society is is truly ready to look at cannabis through a non-punitive way. Like we have all of these conversations about how to minimize the harm of cannabis, how to um, minimize the access of cannabis. And I think that, quite frankly, that's where the mentality comes from. Like, I don't think, I, I think that there are many people still in the legislature who may look at cannabis as we need to minimize the harm. Whereas I think a more open society talks more about how do we maximize the benefits, so to speak. I, I just I just don't think people are in the mental space to say, look, if we have no underage penalties, the world isn't going to end. Like you have to understand the type of society we live in is a very punitive society. You know, and so that's the reason why I can't even like point 
all the blame at, um, you know, a prohibitionist entity like the police that like there are people in the cannabis space who also believe that like the world is going to crumble if you don't have um, underage penalties. But I always give this simple example, right? Like for any parent or for, you know, I'm pretty sure all of you have like, you know, some, some type of you know, teenager or a little person in your family, you know, you, you know, say, say you find weed in the drawer, right? Are you going to turn them into the police? And so, you know, it's, 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 I am, I find some of my five-year-old nephews, he's gone, his dad's a cop. So, you know, I'll just call yeah, him. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know like no, nobody's He'll going probably to be like, Auntie Anne, this is yours. <laughs> you know, like I, I just give that example to say like, okay, how, if we really think that we need like uh, underage penalties, right? Then let's ask ourselves, like, why do we, believe that, especially if we know where the penalties, because penalties come from interaction, they come from traffic stops, right? We know where most of the interactions and in, in traffic stops are. So, you know, if this, if, if we're going to talk penalties, right, I don't think that anybody in like a more wealthy or upper middle-class neighborhood would appreciate like increased drug patrols in their neighborhood that were patting their teenagers down for weed. And you have to ask like, well, why is that? Like, why wouldn't you appreciate that? And I think the consensus is clear is like, I think that everybody thinks like, oh, well, I wouldn't turn in my kid or my nephew or my niece because, you know, they're good people but we can't trust other people's children. And so I, I, think, I think it's kind of like one of those things, but when it's disproportionately in certain communities, it's like, oh, we can't trust those people's children. So I think at the end of the day that when you, when you look at the need for, or, or the so-called need for, for underage uh, penalties, it's hard to separate from the criminal, it's, it's hard. It, you can't separate it from the criminal justice conversation. You, you, you can't. Right. And so it's, it's also a, a fact of like, look, how comfortable is, how, how comfortable are, are, are white people with not levying penalties against communities of color for something that their children do and don't get penalized for like this, like this, this is the magical question. Right. And I mean, if we want to, if we want to test equality, that's a, that's, that's a pretty, that's, that's a pretty deep, um, you know, that's a pretty deep dive to, to test. And I think that's the test that is uh, happening here. Like we say, you know, you say you're liberal, you say you're uh, progressive, so to speak, well, then, you know, what about this right here? And I, I think that those that that's, you know, what's what's being tested right here. It feels like it's almost a roundabout way of addressing the black market that has yeah. affected other states. Like when you look at California, the black market there is thriving. And in some of these other states where it hasn't been where, yes, cannabis is legal in Massachusetts, it's much easier, you know, to pick up weed from the guy in the corner than it is to, you know, drive very far to go to one of those stores. And so, you know, how much would it, 
rather than focusing on punitive like ways to to punish people that are dealing, uh, you know, on the street, wouldn't it be easier just for them to make it easier on the businesses? Like how business friendly is New Jersey going to be where they're worried about, um, you know, this black market still thriving? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the, the, the million dollar question, right, is where does the war on drugs go after cannabis becomes legalized? Um, because there, there was a lot of intense law enforcement activity um, in the war on drugs simply around weed. You know, nothing else, just weed. <laughs> you know, and, and so the, the next question is, does, does the new frontier of the war on drugs become like shutting down the illicit market in, in the name of trying to shore up? Uh, the legal market, right? Like, do we still start having more intense law enforcement activity in in black market uh, neighborhoods saying, well, well, we're just doing this intense amount of activity because we want to make sure the legalized market gets a fair chance. And so there are still like a variety of ways that the war on drugs can continue in in communities of color after this passes. And, you know, and, and then, um, you know, there's the issue of, uh, of home grow, right? Oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah. Get me started on that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and this whole thing of like, well, you know, we will um, have to find a way to monitor like how many plants people grow in their home. Oh, my is, God. Is, Policemen is, are not interested <laughs> in looking in your garden and in your basement. <laughs> I mean, they should like they shouldn't be like it shouldn't be. Oh, God. Don't get me started. Go ahead. I don't even tend to interrupt it's, you. Logistic, well, it's logistically difficult, right? Like you would you would need I'm just looking at it from like a technological and logistical implementation. It would be like very hard to set up a monitoring apparatus that also respected like, you know, civil rights along privacy and surveillance, you know, to actual like the only way you would be able to have an accurate and consistent count in a system that was able to pull that type of information is, is if you had like, I don't know, like if you took the the Baltimore approach and just started like flying a plane over a surveillance plane <laughs> over people's neighborhoods, you know, like it, it's, <laughs> there, there are so many logistical challenges to it. And like a, a, a monitoring program like that also costs money, right? And so, you know, that, that type of surveillance and, and having, that type of knowledge and then the also the lawsuits that would that would come from that i mean look you know it there are people out every saturday night you know getting hammered and like you like like i don't think the homebrew community has has put out alcohol put the alcohol business out you know in any way shape or form and you can you can actually like blow yourself up you know you know, set your house on fire, you know, home brewing alcohol, man. Like you, you know, I'd like to think, I'd like to think, right, that, you know, growing a plant is inherently less of a combustible process, (laughs) (laughs) less of a fire extinguisher driven process, maybe, you know, Like, like, like if you're growing the type of weed plants that can get set on fire and cause an explosion, then you're doing it wrong. That's yeah, that's 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 a new strain right there, man. Yeah, I don't. 
<laughs> I mean, it's interesting. We started this conversation talking about your past um, as a gun violence reporter and, and talking about, you know, policing and the whole concept of um, police and funding and and kind of doing this effort for a less policed people, um, you know, and, and the movement towards that and however you want to couch that, defund the police or whatever we're calling it now. Wouldn't you think that... Um, uh, that, that this kind of goes, speaks to that. Like take, take the cannabis, uh, who cares? Take it off the beat, take it, you know, you don't need to worry about it anymore. If you smell a little something skunky, like you don't need to chase it anymore. Um, and I think uh, for forever, it was also used as, as a way to get in and, and search, um, you know, do, do unlawful searches for people who, um, you know, they were assumed of that they've committed a crime, either based on how they looked or acted or whatever it was. Um, and I think that that takes away a, a tool in the toolkit of, of a lot of police departments. Um, and, you know, I think that there's just, it's so massively complicated um, that, I, I don't know, it just feels like take this off and like do other stuff with your time. I think that's what everybody's asking for. But I mean, like, let's like redefine like what a real crime is. Right. Like, right. like, I guess let's live in this world where like smoking weed is like the most harmful thing for your body and for, and, and like, it's obviously not, it's obviously not for everybody who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like let's live in like some alternate stranger things upside down world where that logic even like tries to apply. Right. And so, you know, like with with the way that some people describe weed, like you you would think that you're, like you're committing suicide on your body, right? You know, like if you look at all of the medical research um, that is on that is on weed, there's like a lot of money around for how weed is harmful, but there's not that a lot of money around to research about how weed is beneficial, right? And so my whole thing is like, okay if smoking weed is bad for you and this person is smoking weed and they're essentially harming themselves, our response is to lock people up that are harming themselves. So like we put, so, so like we, we put suicidal people in jail and in, in prison now and just give them like 10 years for trying to kill themselves. Like, it, like, like, in like, even if we played by that logic, it still would not make sense nope. <laughs> to be putting people in in prison for that. Like, let me take away your freedom for you harming yourself. Like, even by that very logic, it still would and, not make sense. And the thing is, people are starting to understand that. Like, people my parents' age or my aunts and uncles, like, they understand that. They vote for it. They So I feel like the people and the general consumer is good with that. It's, it's the, this web of complex, you know, legislation and all of the, the, the special interests and, and, you know, who, who thought that there was like a big, like a cannabis lobbying arm, but there are. And like, this has now turned into like a, a, a real business with the problems of a real business, but without the benefits of things like 280E or, uh, you know, tax benefits and like that, that afford that are afforded to every other industry. So there's no question there again, it was just my rant, but um, you know, I think that, that lawmakers need to catch up to everybody else 
in this country when it comes to their perception of cannabis, um, its perceived harms, its perceived benefits. Um, and because I, I do think there is a whole world of research that needs to be opened up um, that that we're just we're, we're letting other countries run with it and, and beat us, <laughs> you know, and this could be something that is that is a job creator that is um, helpful to people who are who are suffering. And, you know, we're just we're just kind of, you know, letting it languish with these onerous, silly restrictions. I was listening to um, our sister podcast, Marijuana Today, um, yesterday. That's a weird thing to say out loud. Um, but they had uh, a Canadian on, and he just went on this riff. And I forget who it was, and I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. But he went on this riff about like how he cannot understand American politics. And it is hysterical, <laughs> and it is worth the listen. And it was the most angry I've ever heard a Canadian at us before. And I was like with him. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been a journalist for almost a decade, and I still don't understand it. Yes. So, <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we'll leave it there on a very yeah. confusing note. <laughs> um, Jelani Gibson, thank you so much for coming on. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. Um, we'd love to have you on in a couple months as New Jersey figures its shit out. Um, and yeah, Nick, anything else? No. Yeah. Keep us posted on it. We definitely, you know, obviously Dan's from New Jersey where we've got a lot of coworkers and friends back in the state. We're following this closely. So we're going to be reading all your stuff, man. All right. All right. Well, I will definitely, uh, me and my colleagues will definitely keep people appraised of, uh, of, of the party in Trenton and, and more fun times to come. And subscribe to NJ Cannabis Insider. It is worth it. Pay for good journalism. Uh, NJ.com, the Star Ledger, they're doing great work. Huge thanks to Jelani Gibson, the content lead at NJ Cannabis Insider for Advanced, NJ Advanced Media, which is home to NJ.com and the Star Ledger, uh, which is the paper of record for that great state. Check out NJCannabisInsider.com. It is well, well worth the subscription. Also check out Jelani's work at Jelani Gibson One on Twitter. As always, thanks for listening. Reach out to us at The Green Rush at the underscore Green Rush on Twitter or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or email us at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback and guest ideas. And please subscribe to us in your favorite podcatcher. And if you like us, give us a review. If you don't like us, please don't. One take, Shay. One take. Ugh.